On December 26, 2004, the once peaceful beaches of Kaolak, Thailand, became the site of a nightmare. The tourists and local hotel workers watched with alarm as the ocean receded from the white sand, exposing a vast swath of the dark sea floor. Offshore, the water seemed to pile up on itself, as though the ocean were lifting up to form a massive wall of water, and it was moving back toward the beach at an astonishing speed. From their rented bungalow, tourists Petra Nemkova and Simon Atley heard the shouts from people outside. Before either of them could comprehend what the yelling was about, it hit them. Moving at more than 30 miles per hour, the tsunami wave smashed its way through the wooden bungalow and washed Simon away in the blink of an eye. As Petra watched her boyfriend disappear, the cascade of water tore her off her feet. She went under the water as debris swirled around her. Within a matter of seconds, the peaceful morning had become a fight for survival. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our second of two episodes on the Boxing Day Tsunami of 2004 one of the worst recorded coastal disasters in history. The tsunami was formed after a 9.2 earthquake off the western border of Indonesia. This week, we'll follow the harrowing fight for survival as locals and tourists are swept up by the tsunami's unstoppable force. We'll also investigate the horrific aftermath, the desperate search for survivors, and the tragic recovery of the dead. We'll also explore what Indonesia and other countries have done to improve the tsunami warning system since 2004 and the permanent impact the Boxing Day tsunami had on disaster response across Southern Asia. We'll dive into the churning waters right after this. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. At 8.15 a.m. on December 26th, a seven-year-old boy named Martunis, his sister, and his parents were packed into their family minivan. They'd fled their home in Alue Naga, a coastal village on the Indonesian island of Sumatra, almost immediately after the earthquake subsided about 15 minutes earlier. But now they found themselves in a massive traffic jam. They weren't the only locals who had an understanding of how tsunamis followed earthquakes. While earthquakes were a daily occurrence in Indonesia, tsunamis were relatively rare. They only followed the largest earthquakes. A quake that registers at a five and lower on the Richter scale oftentimes doesn't cause widespread destruction. But the earthquake that morning was a 9.2 and the entire island had shaken for 10 minutes straight. Martunis's father knew there was a strong chance that the quake wouldn't be the end of it. Their home had a clear view of the ocean, and both Martunis and his father saw the water receding towards the horizon. The mouths of rivers were sucked out to sea until local fishermen could see fish stranded on the riverbed. These were familiar warning signs. For many locals, the terrible quake was an urgent reminder of the last few times tragedy struck. Only eight years earlier, in 1996, the country was struck by a magnitude 8.1 earthquake on the island of Biak. The tsunami that followed claimed the lives of 160 people, injured 423 more, and left 5,000 homeless. Now, the same nightmare was playing out again. Crowds of people packed the streets of Sumatra's Banda Aceh region with their vehicles, motorbikes, and foot traffic. Martunis's family, in their minivan, along with everyone else on the road, were trapped, and the tsunami was approaching on the horizon. Tsunamis come in surges of multiple waves often fluctuating in size, but growing in destructive force. The first wave to hit Banda Aceh gently rose above the foundations of buildings, giving the onlookers false hope that the tsunami was shallow and weak. But the water receded again moments later. The crowds tried to push farther inland as the endless white line of foamy water poured over the Sumatran beach. That white water quickly became a mass of brownish-black liquid, bubbling with debris and oil from cars and buildings as it slithered inland, flooding everything it touched. Any houses not reinforced with brick or concrete were washed away instantly. The enormous mass of debris collected along the leading edge of the blackened wave, growing exponentially as the tsunami pushed forward. From the back of the van, Martunis watched as this second wave rose above multi-story buildings. The black wall of water was almost 40 feet high, rushing towards them faster than anyone could run. It hit them moments later at 8.18 a.m. 
The waves slammed into the gridlock traffic, tossing the minivan end over end. Martunis and his family flipped and jostled inside their van several times. With a final jolt, Martunis was knocked unconscious. The black wave cleared out any cars or homes in its path, like a child destroying its sandcastle with one simple kick. The waves were steep, crushing metal cars like soda cans as they pressed into the wall of debris caught in the wave. Boats were carried through the current into the inner portions of the island, sometimes lodging themselves on rooftops or high trees. Many victims caught in the tsunami drowned within moments, while others were battered to death by the debris. The charcoal-colored current penetrated two and a half miles inland, blackening almost like old engine oil instead of water. That oily water was coming for Nazarudin, a fisherman from a nearby village who had rushed home to his wife and son immediately after the earthquake. Now, with his family following, they were fleeing to higher ground through the narrow streets of Banda Aceh. Nazarudin could see the water gaining on them as he glanced back. The water was cutting through houses with ease, wiping away anyone who was unfortunate enough to still be in their homes and businesses. The tsunami was unlike anything Nazarudin could have imagined. All the fishermen could do was keep moving, helping his family outrun the wave. The family turned and found themselves trapped against a concrete wall. Nazarudin knew they had to scale it now to avoid a watery grave. Nazarudin moved swiftly. He helped his wife and child get over the wall. Then he leaped up and heaved himself over. But they were out of time and places to hide. Nazarudin and his family quickly ducked into a two-story building. It was their only option for higher ground. Nazarudin saw a young girl down on the first floor. Without thinking about it, he grabbed her too, bringing her to safety with his wife and child. They rushed to the roof as the oily black water crushed into the building. The entire structure seemed to lean over, bracing against the onslaught of the tsunami. But the building held. The debris-filled water rushed around the building, splashing onto the roof, but not inundating it. Nazarudin breathed a sigh of relief. His family was safe for now. But then he saw them, the corpses. Hundreds of dead bodies floated by on the brackish water. It was 8.45 a.m., only half an hour since the tsunami began, and the coastal region of Banda Aceh was decimated. The two black waves had toppled buildings and crushed cars with ease. But the tsunami didn't stop after it hit Indonesia. Tsunami waves continued outward from the epicenter of the earthquake, rushing toward the mainland of Southeast Asia. The tsunami still had hours to go before it weakened. And now it had one of the most popular tourist regions in the world lying in its path. We'll hear about the horrific effects of the tsunami in Thailand right after this. Now back to the story. After this series of tsunami waves struck Indonesia on December 26, 2004, 
they continued rolling northeast over the Andaman Sea. The tsunami covered over 300 miles in a little more than two hours, reaching the southwest coast of Thailand just after 10 a.m. The white sand beaches of Khao Lak, Thailand, were inundated in seconds. Foamy seawater tore through the beachfront bungalows and swept away thousands of tourists, including young couple Petra Nemkova and Simon Atlee. Water slammed into Petra and Simon's bungalow, scattering the wood walls like a house of cards. Simon was sucked out to the debris-laden water instantly. Petra was washed off her feet seconds later. She was carried along as the tsunami continued mowing down the coastal towns like dry grass, flattening homes and buildings with ease. Petra was tossed around, continuously battered by the enormous chunks of debris caught in the wave. Entire palm trees were ripped up and hurled into her as she tried to fight her way to the surface to breathe. With each attempt, she'd be pushed back below the water. Petra suffered through this brutal cycle of nearly drowning, then coming back up for air dozens of times, thinking any of these moments could have been her last. Each breath was a fight to live. The constant pummeling of debris eventually broke her pelvis in four separate places, nearly severing her spinal cord. She was also bleeding internally. But she was still alive and miraculously still conscious. In a final burst of strength, Petra kicked up through the swirling debris and clutched onto a palm tree. For what seemed like an eternity, Petra held fast onto the palm tree. The pain in her lower body spasmed, bringing tears to her eyes. She held out hope for rescue, praying that Simon was safe. From a hillside above Khao Lak, tourists Tom and Arlette Staup watched the destruction unfold below them. Tom had recognized the warning signs of the oncoming tsunami wave. He and Arlette ran for high ground just moments before the wave struck. Now, two hours later, Tom and Arlette were seeing the first sign of the tsunami's retreat back to the sea. The crowd on high ground, including some other lucky tourists and several Thai locals that worked at the resort, could see the devastation clearly in the noon sun. The hotel below was transformed into an unrecognizable mass of shattered trees, bits of buildings, and corpses. But Tom and Arlette could also see people moving in the wreckage. There were survivors. Their passive witnessing of the calamity below produced an overwhelming sense of guilt and desire to help. In the early afternoon, when they finally believed low-lying sections of the island were safe, the Stoups trudged through the jungle back towards the beaches. After more than three more hours on the hillsides, they descended into chaos. People were already swarming over piles of rubble, listening for cries for help and loading cars and trucks with the wounded. No one knew what to do or where to go yet, as the roads were cluttered with debris and the local clinics had been flooded along with everything else within a few hundred yards of the beach. But the survivors did what they could to help each other amid the corpses that littered the beach. 
Death had come to Cow Lack, claiming at least 5,700 lives almost instantly. Another 3,000 were missing. One of them was Petra Nemkova. All Petra could do was continue hanging on to the palm tree. Hours had passed, and she was still hanging above a sea of debris. Even with a shattered pelvis, scratches, and internal bleeding, she hung on. Petra's mental health was nearly as broken as her bones. All she saw were the remains of broken homes and corpses floating past her for hours on end as the last of the tsunami waters receded. Finally, about eight hours after the tsunami struck Kaolak, a local fisherman noticed her crumpled form high in the palm tree and coordinated her rescue. She was gently brought down and taken to a hospital on high ground. But Simon was still missing. All Petra had was the faint hope that Simon was still alive somewhere, waiting to be rescued. Meanwhile, the Stoups were exhausted from helping move people towards the local bus station for evacuation to the capital, Bangkok. Eventually, Tom and Arlette joined the queue of survivors hoping to board a bus to Bangkok. They managed to get on a bus that evening, and as they passed out of the devastated coastal region, Arlette felt immense guilt. How could she and Tom have emerged unscathed when so many others were dead? Once they arrived at the bus station in Bangkok, Tom and Arlette realized they were some of the only people among the survivors with a working cell phone. Arlette allowed as many people as she could use her cell phone. Most everyone was overcome with emotion as they got a chance to call their families and friends. They were the lucky ones who could still make those calls. Many families across the world would never receive another call from the tourists who had been washed away in the tsunami. Considerable damage had been done to the beaches. Unlike the massive concrete hotels in other tourist-heavy regions, Kaolak had fragile bungalows. The charming, photogenic beachside homes were suddenly gone. Thailand's response was immediate, and rescue units were dispatched within hours of the tsunami's retreat. However, the most significant efforts were in the recovery of the dead. Thousands went missing in the wave, and many individuals who were lucky enough to survive couldn't find closure until their vanished family members were found. The identification of victims quickly became one of the largest forensic operations in Thailand's history. Over a hundred bodies a day were discovered in the immediate aftermath of the tsunami. For survivors like Petra, that was the only hope of hearing news about Simon. Meantime, the rescue and recovery efforts continued across Southeast Asia. Back in Banda Aceh, Indonesia, those who had rushed to higher ground were digging survivors out of the debris throughout the day on December 27th. While many Sumatrans had perished instantly in the tsunami surge, others were clinging on for their lives out in the open ocean after being sucked out to sea by the immense force of the wave. One of these was seven-year-old Martunis, who regained consciousness clinging onto a chair amid a raft of debris. The last thing he remembered was being buckled in his family's minivan as the tsunami overtook them in the traffic jam. 
The force of the water was enough to pull him, his mother, and his two siblings out of the car and toss them in separate directions. Now Martunis was alone and adrift. His mouth was dry and his stomach rumbled. He had no idea where he was floating to. He saw a mattress drifting between some mangroves, the saltwater trees that sprout along coastal regions. Martunis used the last of his energy to paddle to the mattress. Then his lonely fight for survival began. Over the course of five days, Martunis huddled on the mattress with packs of noodles and bottles of water he found floating by. On the sixth day after the tsunami, his supply ran out. Martunis was far from civilization, but he wasn't sure where the tsunami had deposited him. He'd seen no other survivors or signs of rescue. All he'd seen were bodies. We'll hear about the final rescues and the tsunami's terrible legacy right after this. Now back to the story. By mid-January 2005, almost three weeks after the tsunami struck, thousands were still missing and presumed dead by the Indonesian and Thai governments. 20 days after the tsunami, one of the forensics teams collecting bodies off the coast of Sumatra discovered a malnourished child stranded on a mangrove tree. It was Martunis. Against all odds, the young boy from Alue Naga village made it through one of the deadliest tsunamis in recorded history and survived almost three weeks stranded off the coast. He was taken to Fakina Hospital in Banda Aceh, where he was able to reunite with his father. While their reunion was a joyous one, it was quickly mired in heartbreak. His father told Martunis the news. His mother, brother, and sister had died in the tsunami. They were three of the nearly 100,000 dead bodies already accounted for, and they were far from the last ones to be tallied. Every day, Czech tourist Petra Nemkova checked for news about her boyfriend, Simon Atley. She was convalescing in a Thai hospital along with countless others. But weeks had passed with no news of the missing man. Petra's hope was dwindling as her recovery continued. Three months had passed since Petra saw Simon disappear in the rush of water. Her recovery was slow going, and she still had a difficult time walking with her healing pelvis. But considering all she had been through, Petra was in fairly high spirits. She was alive, she was healing, and until she heard otherwise, she had hope that Simon might be found alive. Then the mystery of Simon's fate came to a cathartic close. Seventy days after the tsunami, Petra received a call from Simon's sister. She told Petra that Thailand's emergency services still had many corpses of victims in cold storage. One of them was Simon. It was the news Petra had dreaded for months. Even in the years since the tsunami, Simon's memory has never left Petra. She has dedicated much of her life to supporting victims of natural disasters. She isn't the only one. 
Tom and Arlette Staup were considered heroes for their rescue assistance after the tsunami. Since that fateful day, the pair have lived with more appreciation for each breath. In the months after the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, the death tolls and damage calculations fluctuated, but one truth emerged immediately. Far more people perished than expected across the region. In the island nation of the Maldives, two-thirds of the capital city of Malé flooded, killing nearly 100 people. The southern shores of Myanmar and Bangladesh were struck, killing dozens more. But these numbers paled in comparison to the tragedies on the Indian subcontinent. In Sri Lanka, the tsunami swept clean almost 500 miles of coastline, destroying houses and tourist centers. 31,000 people were killed. The tsunami killed another 16,400 in India, with Tamil Nadu hit with the most devastation. The tsunami even crossed the entire Indian Ocean and wreaked havoc in Africa. Nearly 300 people died in Somalia, including 100 fishermen caught offshore. 10 people died on the Tanzanian coast. But in Kenya, where evacuation procedures had been put into place, there was only one casualty. This raised questions as to why an African nation, thousands of miles from the epicenter, was more prepared than the islands at Ground Zero. In the hunt for answers in the aftermath of the disaster, many nations generously donated aid to cover the immediate needs of the people affected by the tsunami. But Germany had a different approach in mind. Instead of exclusively sending financial and food aid like other countries, Germany promised the Indonesian government it would help develop and construct a complete tsunami warning system. Indonesia had never had a comprehensive, well-functioning tsunami warning system up to that point. It took the worst disaster in the nation's history to finally make it a priority, and a foreign government's help to build it. Many experts didn't take the German proposal seriously, simply because German scientists didn't have a history of studying tsunamis. Regardless, Berlin decided to put their own researchers and engineers to work. The project formally began in 2005, with a goal to have the first warning systems in place by 2010. However, with 125 team members and a $60 million budget, the first completed and functioning system was in place by 2008. Building a system for Indonesia meant starting from scratch. The coasts along the Indian Ocean had very little technology to detect tsunamis. The project required launching sensors onto the seafloor in order to send back data on changes that were occurring with the water pressure. That data was then sent up to buoys on the surface, which were taken to a data center in Jakarta. The goal was to achieve a successful warning rate of at least 50%, a much lower number than the already established warning systems in the Pacific. The warning itself was to be transmitted through all forms of communication, TVs, cell phones, or local radio stations in the poorer areas where technology isn't so common. They'd eventually train local scientists to properly maintain and take charge of the functioning system, making this a new beginning for the country going forward. 
In 2007, before the system was even fully installed, it was successfully able to locate movement on the ocean floor and pinpoint the magnitude of two earthquakes. A message was sent out to the warning center within five minutes, giving people in the area approximately 20 minutes to get to safety on higher ground. However, the system isn't without its flaws. The original buoys transmitted data too slowly to be an effective warning system and had to be returned. Even now, while the system is better than nothing, it's far from perfect. The harsh reality is that coastal towns are likely to be the first hit by a tsunami and the last to receive the technology needed to predict them. This means that coastal residents are often unable to evacuate in a timely manner. Full protection from quakes and tsunamis means more than just having a warning system. Natural disasters are inevitable, and architecture and industries need to adapt to the risk. In Japan, where tsunamis and earthquakes are nearly as common as in Indonesia, citizens can rely on a warning system that started in the 1930s and has improved exponentially with each passing year. But the government knew that this alone wouldn't be enough. They implemented stricter building codes, requiring homes to be more durable to withstand earthquakes. Additionally, routes were constructed for easy evacuation, and citizens were educated about proper evacuation procedures in the event of a disaster. American seismologist Carrie C. theorizes that governments in places like Indonesia might be better off if they spent less resources on sensors and more on campaigns to educate coastal residents about how to respond when a tsunami hits. He also said that more funding should be prioritized for evacuation routes, high-rise shelters, and relocating citizens away from vulnerable areas. C had worked extensively along the coastal Indonesian town of Padong. He worried that even if an alert system was able to warn citizens ahead of a tsunami, the frightened people wouldn't immediately go to the government shelters as instructed. Instead, they would try to flee in their cars, creating traffic jams like the one that cost Martunis most of his family. Apart from the developments in warning systems, most of the regions that were hit by the 2004 tsunami have since rebuilt. Indonesian tourism is flourishing again. In fact, the numbers have nearly tripled since 2004, reaching 15 million visitors in 2018 alone. In hopes of keeping those numbers from decreasing due to fears of another tsunami, Indonesia has planted mangroves along the coasts to help break the harsh waves before they hit the beaches. The enticing getaway of a sandy beach is once again appealing to international visitors. But scientists have maintained extra vigilance in the region, making sure that they are not caught off guard again. Many scientists are also looking back at geological records in order to predict how and when the next great tsunami will occur. By examining coral remains and soil sediments from other tsunamis, they've created a tool to project when the next tsunami of a similar size will likely hit, as well as the size of the area that might be inundated. The detection of natural disasters will continue to be imperfect because nature doesn't adhere to human schedules or technology. The natural world is unpredictable and disaster can appear at any time. 
As Indonesia, Thailand, and the rest of Southeast Asia painfully learned in 2004, there are only two options. Get prepared or get out of nature's way. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Travis Gunn, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>